Great, thanks uh, Liz very much. We're on week eight of uh, James, two more weeks to go after this one, then Palm Sunday, then Easter Sunday, and I uh, hope you've chosen your chocolate egg for Easter because it's getting close. Right, who's calling the shots? That's this morning, and I uh, hope you've got the, the Bible open in front of you. If um, you haven't brought your own, really good to bring your own, just in case the ones in the pews have been altered in some way. Just take it by surprise. So, uh, Bible's open, James chapter 4, and uh, verse 1 gives us a question as we get straight into it together. The question is, what causes fights and quarrels? It's a good question. It's a, sorry, give the boy space, man, space, just need some space. It's a a, a really good question. What causes fights and quarrels? We would naturally answer that very quickly and very easily and say, well, it's it's obvious what causes fights and quarrels. We're all different. Um, uh, We all have different needs, different desires, different preferences, different personalities, different ways of approaching things. So, in a sense, um, quarrels and fights are inevitable. Think about the dynamic that James is writing to. He's writing to a church that's under pressure. Church is made up of a nuclear family surrounded by an extended family uh, and then groups of extended families relating together. That's how they organize their lives. The, the very strength of the church was not in their uh, organizational skills there. Uh, all those things that we have later developed like uh, a charity commission, uh, uh, trustees and all the rest of it. What was binding these people together was the power of their relationships. And uh, not surprisingly, from time to time, fights and quarrels broke out. Well, of course, because we are different. To which James cuts right across our natural way of thinking about quarrels and difficulties and the things that divide us with a rhetorical question, great preacher's question. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? The reason preachers' questions are rhetorical is that you know full well you're not going to get an answer even if you want to, so uh, keep it at that level. That was a joke, by the way. Come on, lighten up. It's going to be a really long morning if uh, you don't tune in. So a rhetorical question, don't they come from your desires that battle within you, says James? Answer, yes, of course they do. That quarrels and fights are not really about the fact that we're different. Not really about the fact that there are, there are different ways of approaching the same thing, that there are different personalities and so on. What causes fights, he says, is the battle, the desires that come within you. And he's picking up what he's been talking about in James chapter 3. What causes fights is our desires. And he highlights two desires that wage war in the soul. Two desires that are typical, archetypal of earthly wisdom, which you remember from last time, is wisdom that's unspiritual, wisdom that comes from the devil, these desires of envy and selfish ambition. Interestingly enough, they're the same desires that Andrew read about in Philippians chapter 2. It's as if the Bible has the same author from beginning to end. Isn't that strange? So it's nothing to do then with our preferences or our personality types. If our wisdom, James has been saying at the end of chapter 3, comes from the right place, If our wisdom comes from the right place, all will be well. But, he says, if our wisdom comes from our natural place, our earthly place, then there will be fights and there will be 
quarrels. And it will affect the way that you behave. Look at verse 2 with me. You desire, but do not have. So your behavior changes. So you kill, you covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. Perhaps not literally killing, although ultimately it's the same uh, attitude within us that causes people to commit murder, which is why Jesus says, if you look angrily at your brother, you've effectively committed murder in your heart because you've aligned yourself with the same earthly wisdom, the same unspiritual wisdom, the same wisdom that comes from the devil himself. So you you begin to act out of these desires that wage war within you, kill, you get destructive in your actions and in your speech. Have you ever, I want you to think really hard about this, you ready? Have you ever been grumpy, irritable, rude, or short-tempered because your desire was not being met. You don't need to answer. A rhetorical question. Just a preacher's question. How do you respond when you don't get what you want? So by our words... And by our actions, we begin to kill. We, we become destructive with those same words and actions. And, and we covet. We harbor a bad spirit towards someone or something because we haven't got what we want. I think we all know what we're talking about. And so then the inevitability, James says, as he completes this little section, the end of verse 2, inevitably you quarrel and you fight. Why? Because our natural desires of envy and selfish ambition continue to battle within us. Now, remember last week, two wisdoms. Two wisdoms that were not just a a slight tweak on one or the other, but two wisdoms that are poles apart. That if we don't realize it, we're being duped because these two wisdoms come from a, a very different place. And so he says, you, James is saying it in chapter 3, you can't keep your natural wisdom and just have a little Christian upgrade on the side to your natural wisdom. You, you can't uh, uh, carry on the same kind of way, out of the same kind of needs and desires and add Christianity as a kind of bolt-on extra. What you need is a completely new operating system. What you need, to go back to language we've used earlier on in James, is a complete new heart. Remember, you can't speak differently unless your heart changes. You can feel guilty about the words that you say and try with all your human effort to change the way you speak. But I tell you this, unless your heart changes, you will never ultimately and successfully alter the way that you speak. You need a, an, uh, not an upgrade, but a complete new operating system. And James is making exactly the same point here. If you want to live with the unity, with the life to which Christ has called you in your marriage and with your children and in your extended family and in your pew and in your church and in your small group missional community, wherever you might find yourself, then what you require is to operate out of a brand new system. Otherwise, the earthly natural wisdom will always wage war and continue to battle within you. 
And Jesus goes on to make, uh, sorry, James goes on to make the point that even if you pray about it, verse 3, it won't help you. You don't often hear that, do you? But even if you pray, James says, it won't actually help you. Here we go. End of verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask God. And you don't ask God because you know you're asking from the wrong place. But maybe you've become so blind and you do ask anyway. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. He's saying, even if you pray, your prayers won't be answered because they're still coming from this place of earthly, natural wisdom that in the end is looking out for self above all else. Trouble with prayer, says James, it's a question of motive. Now, now that's a real challenge. And I want you to think with me about some of the prayers that you're praying at the moment, some of the big prayers that you are praying at the moment. Maybe some of the prayers that you've prayed endlessly or for long periods of time. And I want you to think really honestly about those prayers and ask yourself what's the motive that drives you? What's the motive of your prayer? Now, it's really easy to dismiss that question very quickly. You will have a Christian answer to why you are praying. Obviously, otherwise you probably wouldn't have been praying in the first place. But I'm inviting you just to push through some of the, those, those motives in your heart and, and just see them as they line up around the particular prayer that you're thinking about because we come with every, to everything with mixed motives almost all of the time. And so what are the motives that are lurking in your heart around the particular prayers that you are praying? It's very easy to put a Christian wrapper around it, but what really is going on in your heart? Uh, And if you're honest, and I've got no reason to doubt that you wouldn't be, if you're honest you'll discover in your heart what I discover in mine. That there are mixed motives. That when James talks about heavenly wisdom being pure, as I think about what drives me to pray about certain things, if I am honest, I can see that my motives are not all pure. That there is and are other agendas. And it's as we recognize those other agendas, as we choose to lay those other agendas down, as we choose to open up our hearts afresh to God and say, Look, I want my heart to be pure. I want my heart to be not double-minded, but singly focused. That God can begin to work afresh in us. So that we can genuinely with all our hearts, with whatever it is that we are praying for, pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. 
How many times do we genuinely pray that prayer and we only half want it? I will do anything you want me to, Lord, as long as it's not that place or that person or causing me to sort out that situation. Anyone know what I'm talking about? And so... James offers to us in these remaining verses, up to verse 10, which as far as we'll go this morning, he offers us what it might look like in order for us to go for a complete new operating system rather than just an upgrade. He says in verse 4, look, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means you're an enemy against God? We don't want to think like that. He says, again, look, this wisdom, in contrast, is that stark. You can't come to church, do all that stuff, be a friend of God, but still embrace this earthly wisdom. For as long as you still embrace the earthly wisdom, James says, then you're still not a friend to God. It's a hard words, but they're here for us. And he draws all this to a conclusion in verse 5. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? And you'll see there's some footnotes. There are several different ways of trying to translate this verse. And uh, I love the way that scholars and theologians spend decades trying to work out exactly how to translate it. Essentially, it means the same thing. Better to spend time trying to translate it than actually do it. Whichever way you cut this verse, it's about being solely devoted to God. It's about allowing no other rivals in your heart or life to God and to his Holy Spirit. Either way, the Spirit searches us to find out where our motives are not clear, where we are not pure, to search our hearts, to discover areas where instead of going for a complete new operating system, we've just tried to bolt on Christianity and it doesn't work. So, how do you change your operating system? That's the question that chapter 3 and chapter 4 have been edging us closer and closer towards. How, how do you change yourself from the inside out? You can't. You can't. You cannot change by yourself. You cannot change. Verse 6, he gives us, this is the only way, He gives us more grace. Without God's grace in our lives, we will always continually operate out of worldly wisdom and envy and selfish ambition will always rise no matter how hard we try to give a respectable image to everybody else and maybe even ourselves. We can't change ourselves. If you read the book of James, going back to that faith and works sermon a few weeks ago, and think that James is saying that somehow by your own efforts you can get to God, you have misunderstood Jesus' little brother. It's absolutely clear that the only way you can speak right 
The only way you can live a life that isn't quarrelsome and full of fits and um, uh, fighting and quarrels, the, the only way you can keep guard of your tongue, the only way you can stop showing favoritism, the only way you can reject the material spirit of our age, the only way you can put the plight of the poor, the widows and the orphans first, the only way you can turn God's word from being an intellectual exercise into an obedient reality. The only way you can embrace the trial because of what it's teaching you and because of how it's making you more like Jesus. That was a quick summary of all of James so far in case you wondered where I was plucking all those things from. The only way you can do all that is as if God changes your heart. It's the only way. Not an upgrade, but some complete new operating system. And this is the invitation for you in the next five, six, seven minutes. Do you want to cry out to God today for him to change your heart? How do you do it? How do you change the operating system? These are not mechanical steps, but these are truths to touch our hearts. You need firstly uh, to submit to God. Verse 7, submit yourselves then to God. Who believes that God knows best? Oh, about a third of you. Great. It's a good start. Well up. How many of you believe that God knows best? Live like God knows best. That's a harder question, isn't it? Because so often we will bring our intellect, our earthly wisdom to bear on a situation. I love this verse in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 5 verse uh, 2. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. God's God, so shut up. That would be, if I was translating the Bible, that's what I'd put for that whole verse. Yeah, it's a sim- uh, and yet, we bring all our ideas and our intellect and our clever stuff and we bring it all before God. And, uh, and James says, look, no, if you want a new heart, a new operating system, that's saying, in the end, I, I, I can't do this. This is about God's way or there is no way. I'm letting him have his way. Submit to God. And it's not a kind of it's interesting the word that, 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 is, that is used. It's not, a, it's not a kind of passive submission like um, someone might come in before a king and kneel down in an act of submission. This word for submit is more like you are a soldier in the king's army and you've got yourself ready to respond to whatever the king asks you to do. So it's kind of very active. You're ready, you're standing, waiting, and whatever the king says, you're about to go and do it. That's the perspective. If you want a new heart, do we embrace the perspective that I'm ready to do whatever the king asks of me? And if you even begin to say that, you will have to do this. You will have to resist the devil. Sometimes people say, I don't understand all this spiritual warfare stuff. To which my natural reply is, just try doing one little thing for God and watch what happens. The moment you set your heart to reach for something more in God's kingdom, 
The Bible is consistently clear that the evil powers that wage uh, and rule around this earthly planet will get involved in what's going on. Missional community leaders stepping out, you'll see it. Small group leaders stepping out, you'll see it. You're determined to have an intentional conversation with someone for the kingdom this week, you'll see it. Uh, You're going to commit yourself to praying for something all this week, you'll see it. Whatever it is, the moment you step out, like lifting your head above the, the parable, lifting your head above the trenches, that moment. And James says, look, just be ready. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Resist the devil. And he will, no questions asked, he might try, but he will flee from you. And and I I love the perspective that I haven't seen until very recently. You know how you see new things in the Bible? You still reading the Bible? Great, good. And and, and Genesis is this massive God, Genesis chapter 1, who creates the heavens and the earth, who speaks light and there is light, does all that. This massive picture of God. Then Genesis chapter 3, we get the first picture of the devil. What is it? A snake, a snake, small, relatively insignificant, got a nasty bite, but compared to the God of heaven and earth, what's a snake? Wouldn't you agree? And, and yet we, we, we operate like this, you know, as if kind of like there's some kind of dualism going on, as if, if some kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the devil's a real threat. He is a real threat until you acknowledge that he isn't a real threat because Jesus is going to sort things out. And you might resist the devil by rejecting his lies. You might resist the devil by putting on some armor, which is basically all the truth about uh, uh, God that was found in in Ephesians 6. You, You might resist the devil by standing firm against doubt and discouragement. Have you noticed how many times the Bible says, do not be afraid? It is highly likely then that as a Christian, there are going to be moments when you're tempted to be afraid. Otherwise, it wouldn't say it on almost every page. So resist the devil. Expect to be afraid and expect to stand against it. How many times does the Bible say, do not be discouraged? You've got no idea, but it's quite a lot. And that's because there will be things that will discourage us. And so we have to resist the devil. I, I know I'm going to get discouraged, but I'm choosing not to be discouraged. Honor Jesus. Speak out the truth of who he is. Stand against the devil. And thirdly, we've got to move on quickly. Engage your heart. Engage your heart. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Isn't that amazing? Engage your heart. Cultivate drawing near to God. What, what is it? What is it that helps you draw near to God? What is it that helps you do that? Do you know what it is? You got it in your mind? When was the last time you did it? How often do you do it? What other things do you allow to stop you doing what you know you need to do to draw near to God? It's not an extra. It's not a treat. Not a luxury when you've managed to get all your jobs done and create some space. Drawing near to God is an absolute necessity. What is it that helps you draw near to God? And what's your rhythm about making sure 
you do that. And then you've got to clean yourself up. But there's a very clever use of language in all of this that James is using. When he talks about coming near to God and he'll draw near to you, he's using temple language. Language of sacrifice. So in their minds is, is the temple, is the, is the lambs that are being sacrificed. And then is Jesus and, and his death on the cross. And, and how what Jesus did was a, was a full revelation of what the, the temple was only pointing to. And he, he's got them in that place with the language that he's using. And he says, they're in that place. At the foot of the cross. The only place where it's possible. Now, wash your hands. And cleanse your hearts. Because there in the death of Jesus is the very means by which you can do just that. You can't clean your own hands. You can't wash your own heart. Except in that place. Except in the shadow of his sacrifice for us. So James begins to wrap all this up and says, bottom line... You've got to get serious. You've got to get serious about the stuff in your life that's a, uh, that's a pickle. You can't just add on Christianity and hope for the best. You've got to root out all of those things that are against God's kingdom. They need to be the things that you begin to grieve about and mourn about and wail about. These are the things that you need to sort out in your life. The message puts it like this about getting serious. Hit bottom and cry your eyes out. The fun and games are over. Get serious, really serious. Get down on your knees before the master. It's the only way you'll get up on your feet. Are we really going to surrender to Jesus? And then the promise. And then the promise. That if we give it all up, that if we lay it all down, my passions, my desires, my hopes, my dreams, all of it, nothing without you, then the Lord will lift us up. The Lord will lift us up. Simple question. Where do you need to submit to God today? Where? Where? And what does submitting mean? It means resisting the devil. It means embracing the presence of God. It means getting yourself cleaned up at the foot of the cross. It means bowing the knee to Jesus. Where, 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 where do you need to submit to Jesus today?